This week on Water Flying, we are at Kenmore Air exploring how the wind affects our seaplane landing strategies. You are listening to Water Flying, a show dedicated to all things seaplanes. Brought to you by the Seaplane Pilots Association. My name is Steve McCoy. I'm the executive director of the Seaplane Pilots Association, which is the world's largest nonprofit advocacy organization dedicated to the protection and promotion of the water flying community. Climb aboard! We're about to start today's episode. Well, on this episode of Water Flying, I am joined by my good friend, John Gowie, an SPA board member and director of flight operations at Kenmore Air. We are just outside of Seattle here enjoying the beautiful Seattle weather. John, it is always a pleasure for me to learn from you and now an even greater pleasure to have the opportunity to spread your seaplane wisdom to a greater audience via the podcast. So thanks for joining me today and taking time out of your busy flight schedule. Well, thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with telling our listeners a little bit about uh, your journey to become a seaplane pilot and some of the experience you've gained over the years. Well, I ended up here at Kenmore Air Harbor probably because I grew up about two miles from here. And in the 1960s, I was that kid who went out in the backyard and uh, lay down in the grass and looked up. And what I saw at that time were seaplanes, mostly beavers, flying in and out of Kenmore Air Harbor here. Well, that so, sounds pretty dreamy for a uh, childhood. Oh, yes, it was. And so I used to ride my bike down here when I was a kid, and I would wax airplanes in exchange for rides. And that was kind of my first exposure to, to the place. And I kind of got sidetracked and got a college degree and did all that other stuff before I came back to it. But eventually came back to work here, working on the docks first, like many of us did, and then as a flight instructor, and then eventually a line pilot, and I was the company's chief pilot for 10 years until the the uh, deal role, and I've done that almost another 10 years as well. So a lot of flying in there, that's still my favorite thing to do with all the other obligations, but uh, I've learned a few things along the way, most of them through mistakes of my own, as, as many of us have, but... Uh, uh, be fun to talk about some of what we've learned uh, with respect to the wind. Yeah, and I have to tell you, um, I've really appreciated over the last two decades, I've come here literally on an annual basis, and the staff here at Kenmore Air have always been so accommodating, and it's just been a joy because I have, I I feel like I'm at home when I come back here. Oh, for sure. (laughs) Yep. Oh, we've had a good time, you and I have, flying together, and certainly looking forward to doing more of that. Probably not today. It's really not that, not quite that nice of a day out today, but hopefully soon. Matter of fact, you may hear the the rain pounding on the roof here of the building. Uh, it's the ceilings all of maybe a hundred feet. Yep, it's <laughs> one of those Seattle Chamber of Commerce days for sure. <laughs> but uh, you know, Kenmore Air has also been very supportive of the Seaplane Pilots Association. You guys have been engaged uh, with our advocacy efforts, and again, it's really a pleasure to have the a commercial operator such as yourselves being uh, represented on our board. So uh, that's all really important. Yeah, it's been, for me, it's been an honor to be on the board. And really, it's been pretty illuminating too, just seeing the some of the issues that we in the Northwest don't necessarily deal with on a, on a uh, daily basis. But um, 
you know, a lot of advocacy issues that uh, you've introduced me to and invasive species issues, et cetera. So it's been, it's been a pleasure to be on the board and to help. That's great. So let's dive into today's topic, which is not really talked about enough. And both of you and I agree on this, uh, that uh, wind and how it affects our seaplane operations and our planning for our landing and takeoff, um, really, I don't think uh, gets enough uh, attention. And you've got uh, some fascinating uh, uh, wisdom on all of this. I got interested in uh, in wind a long time ago. Uh, there was a Transport Canada study that was done. It's quite old now, but still relevant. It looked at seaplane accidents in Canada over a 14-year period. I think it was 1976 to 1990, so really quite dated at this point. Uh, but... Um, uh, the conclusion of that was, I think it was 78% of the accidents were, were takeoff or landing accidents. And when you really looked at it, when you kind of delved into the descriptions of what was happening, uh, it was all wind-related. And, mm-hmm. and really, that study had more to do with survivability. But I was more interested in, okay, why are these accidents happening to start with? And really, as best I could tell, it came down to wind and wind shear. And so that led me into uh, thinking about a lot of different ways to train for that here in our company. And so we've, we have developed some training programs to, to deal with both wind shear and, and also just uh, reading the wind on the water as well. And I think that's really important here in the Pacific Northwest, but everywhere, probably except where I live back in Florida, we don't have a lot of the uh, factors that induce some of the wind shear and some of these wind issues uh, as much as here in the Pacific Northwest, in the Pacific Northwest, and in particular, the operating environment that you guys operate in, I mean, it's critical to really understand how the wind is going to affect your strategy uh, for landing and takeoff. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, the wind shear really comes down to the kind of wind shear that we're interested in really comes down to the interaction of terrain and wind. So you kind of step, take a step back and and you ask, well, what is wind shear? Wind shear, if you define it, it's a an abrupt change in wind direction or velocity over a relatively short distance. And how short are we talking about? It could be extremely short. It could be a matter of feet even. But, you know, more commonly, you know, maybe 50 yards, 100 yards, or or somewhere in that, uh, in that area. But, you know, there's also wind shear that occurs at altitude and temperature inversions, for example. That's that's important in some ways. It certainly is is uh, turbulence inducing, but the kind of wind shear that causes causes accidents is kind of the interplay with wind and terrain, and we deal with that a lot around here. Yeah, and it's, you know, it'd be a good idea to look at some fluid dynamics uh, type of things because that's exactly what we're talking about. The the wind is flowing around the terrain and other objects uh, in coves, and the way it interacts is all a matter of fluid dynamics. And so there's some really good crossover here, which is... I, uh, I flew with a, a guy here for a long time, many years, who used to say that if we could actually see the wind, we'd be afraid to go out and fly in it. <laughs> and and I, I kind of understand that point. You can be assured that on any day when you have a sustained wind of, let's say, 15 knots or greater, and that's a little bit arbitrary, but that's probably about right. A good indicator. Yeah, I think so. Um, if you have that sustained wind, you can be assured that as it interacts with terrain, especially around here, around Seattle area, Pacific Northwest, you're going to have areas of wind shear that are dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. Again, because 
that the coves and the, the terrain, I mean, again, the, the islands have more terrain, again, than I'm used to flying in. And that's why I, I really like covering a topic like this. If you're coming from another area of the country, you really need to pay attention to this. But also, if you're flying as a local pilot here in the uh, Pacific Northwest, you need to develop these skills. And you've spent a lot of time studying the, how to do that and perfecting that and being able to pass that on to the pilots here at Kenmore and giving safety seminars in the local area. So talk about some of the ways that you, you assess the water and that condition. Yeah, and so, so the FAA says that when you give recurrent ground training, you have to talk about wind shear. That's one of the required topics. But to be able to talk about that, you also first have to talk about how do you read wind direction on the water. One of my favorite things to do with, with a pilot that I'm working with, whether it's a company pilot or maybe somebody else that I'm giving instruction to, I will ask them, I'll say, hey, how do you uh, assess wind direction on the water? What clues do you look for? And almost all the time, the answers run the gamut from smoke, uh, birds, uh, I, I'm not making that up. I'm not making that up. Uh, anchored boats, uh, calm areas by the shore. Uh, those those are kind of the typical answers, and there's a few more that I'm probably forgetting. But flags and, oh, and yeah. all the things that we're taught out of the book, probably in in doing our single engine C rating, those are a lot of the the things that are talked about. But they don't go into these more advanced ways of looking at it. That, that's right, and they. Uh, so I would call those kind of macro level or high level clues, and there's nothing wrong with those per se, but they all have their problems. For example, if you're looking at calm areas by the shore, if you're dealing with saltwater areas, there can be a lot of calm areas that have nothing to do with wind direction. It's, uh, how deep is the water there? Exit, right. And it's the same story with a sail, a moored boat, a moored sailboat. You know, that, that okay. might be pointing into the current and not into the wind. And as far as smoke and birds are concerned, you know, maybe you don't have any, have either one of those to look at. And if it's on a ridge, it doesn't necessarily make a good indicator for what's going on on the surface of the water. No, it doesn't. And, but the good news is, is you, there is something that works and that's, that's your ability to read the water at the exact location that you want to land or take off. But interestingly enough, most people don't lead with that. Most people don't say, well, I, I read the water. And that's how I can tell what's going on. And so I think that's a really important point. The whole point of this is knowing what's going on with the wind at your intended touchdown zone. Exactly. And it's, you know, I like to talk about it in terms of, it's kind of like one of those 3D books. Uh, if you've ever seen one of those 3D, I don't know that what they pop out called. when you open them. Yeah, exactly. Like one of those 3D puzzle books where there's a hidden, uh, there's a hidden pattern, right? And you can stare at those pictures for several minutes and then finally, you don't see anything at first, but then finally that... that when you have that aha moment. <laughs> exactly. That image or the uh, finally, you know, finally reveals itself. And it's kind of similar, I think, reading the water. Because you can, when you're first learning how to do it, it, it doesn't look like anything. But once you figure out how to pick up on that surface pattern, it is that, like you just said, it's that aha moment when it all makes sense. And uh, once you see it, it's hard to unsee it. But yep. until you see it... It's a complete, Yep, you can't figure it out. Yep, but nobody's born with the ability to do it, as far as I can tell. I certainly was not. And, but it's a skill that you can learn, and there's specific ways you can learn it. Uh, the, one, probably the best thing to start with is you can't get any of that, of that kind of information out the front windshield. 
Um, you can get those high-level clues. You can get those macro-level clues like, okay, this is generally a day when we've got 15 to 20 knots out of the north. But that doesn't really say anything about that particular piece of water you want to land on. And looking out the front windshield is not going to answer that for you. I think that's, you know, the counterintuitive part of it. For most people, they assume that you're looking forward to do this stuff, but you're looking beyond where you need to be looking. You're not looking where you need to be looking. That's right. I mean, the clues come from looking out the side window down at an angle in the proper lighting. And, you know, your ability to do that, you could be able to do that pretty instantaneously just depending on what the conditions are but you might have to circle a couple of times before you can pick up on that but what you're looking for you're looking for a surface pattern so not the underlying swell pattern but a surface pattern where where the wind is bending the wavelets into basically that letter c and everybody's seen that in books but it it makes a great pattern that is it's basically like carrying a wind tee with you anywhere you go and once you learn how to read that and you learn how to evaluate that it will never let you down and it's it's uh, i mean there's a few things a few other things you need to do to kind of put it into practice but uh, that's the first skill is just figuring out how you where do you look and how do you look you look down at an angle out the side window and you probably, in, in many cases, you have to circle the area that you, you want to operate on until you get the right lighting. Yeah, because if the, depending on the direction of the sun, you want to be where the wave is illuminated by the sun. And if it's in a shadow, uh, if there's a shadow because of the terrain, it can be difficult to see those, the, the shape of those wavelets. Yeah, exactly. And then once you figure out that pattern, then everything you do is built on that. Um, you know, rather than, I mean, the difference between doing it that way and using more of the macro level clues is when you've started your approach and you make that approach, you know exactly what that approach is. Is it a 10 degree crosswind? Is it a, a 20 degree crosswind? Is it none at all? You're not just kind of hoping it all works out. You are, you are making an approach and knowing exactly what you're doing on that approach and the way you're doing that is the angle of you and your airplane relative to that letter C. And, and for me, I, I like to break it up into, into components. Uh, I kind of draw mentally draw a circle, basically, as I'm on approach. And I'm cross-checking this wind direction. And it kind of depends on the strength of the wind. But um, I usually figure 10 to 15 degrees either side of upwind. That's kind of the green zone, the safe zone. And again, how do you know you're even in that zone? Well, you look at the... Amount of drift you're getting? Well, kind of. I mean, the, yeah, the amount of drift relative to that pattern. Not so much the amount of drift relative to shore. Correct. Because that yeah. does not help you out all that much. I mean, unless the shore is right next to you, which normally it isn't. So you're, it's, all, it's all your drift or your motion relative to that pattern, relative to that, that wavelet pattern. So in the green zone, you can really, you know, you can do a lot that's not very correct and you can get away with it. You can be a little flat, you can be a little fast. And in that green zone, you're, you probably are going to get away with that. When you get into what I would call the yellow zone, which is maybe, say, uh, 20 degree crosswind all the way around to a 90 degree, 90 degree crosswind and how big those zones are just depends on, on the, the strength, strength of the, of the wind. wind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Said, well, that was good. We said that in stereo. That's right. It must be true. 
Um, yeah, in the yellow zone, you can't get away with much. Your technique has to be good. You have to be on speed. You have to touch down at the right speed, uh, the right angle, and without any side load, and keep flying the airplane all the way to a stop. Or you're, you know, you risk a water loop in that situation. And of course, the red zone, anything, anything beyond a ninety degree cross, when you start getting into quartering tailwind, and we don't even go there. Yeah, that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> But, you know, that's important. You know, you have to maintain uh, the understanding that you're pilot in command. You're not riding the airplane down. Uh, you have to be constantly evaluating and correcting uh, for what you're experiencing versus what that surface of the water is telling you. Right. I mean, one thing I've learned with, with crosswind landings in particular, you know, it, as you sit in the right seat, if you're an instructor, uh, you know, if I'm in the green zone, if somebody's doing something within, say, 15 to 20 degrees of the wind direction, well, sure, I'm paying attention, but I'm not particularly uh, worried about anything. If somebody's in that yellow zone we were just talking about, 20 degrees all the way around to 90, as an instructor, you're sitting there thinking, okay, I really got to pay attention here. I got to I gotta cover the downwind. Do I let him do – how far do I let them go? Right, right. I got to cover the downwind rudder. I got to really make sure everything is, is, uh, is right here. But the other thing I've learned about that yellow zone and those crosswind landings – uh, is a lot of people will talk about, you know, judging drift relative to something on the shore. Uh, like, well, I'm going to pick that house right there. Well, that that's not a bad idea, but a lot of times the house that they picked is a mile away or half a mile. And, I mean, you can't really tell, you know, how much drift you have relative to that house that's so yeah, far away. Yeah, when I away. talk about drift, I'm talking about on those wavelets. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's all... It's all drift relative to that pattern you've set up. And that you can see really well. It's a little bit like one of those 3D pictures again. But, but once, you, once you pick that up and you have that ability, it's, it's great because it doesn't lie to you. I mean, there's, there's kind of a momentary, uh, and I shouldn't say momentary. There can be a few minutes of confusion when you've had a wind direction that's been, you know, say it's been blowing 15 out of the south for, I don't know, for half an hour. You're going to have a few minutes of confusion um, if there's a new wind direction. It's going to erase that old pattern and create a new pattern. You're going to have an underlying swell there that that doesn't really conform to the surface, the new surface pattern. But um, uh, it's it's great because anywhere you go, you, you don't need anything else except that, and there's nothing else that's better than that. Yeah, and this is a, some of the what I really enjoy, and I think most of us enjoy as seaplane pilots, is this is a really demanding, a cerebral, a cerebral activity of, of flying seaplanes. I mean, there's a lot for us to process and look at. It's not like landing on a runway. So most people would assume that, well, you land, you know, according to the swell. Well, the swell is only one indication, and that's only one of our considerations. That's, that's where the water's going. That's not necessarily where the wind's going. That could be influenced by current and other factors, and we really want to look at, at those, those wind conditions. Right, right. And I mean, I, part of this, it probably sounds like I've got it all figured out and I don't make mistakes with that. That is certainly not true. I, you know, there's several times, you know, I will, I will do my overflight. I'll check things out. I'll, I'll, I'll figure out the wind and then I'll be making my approach. But I always cross check that on my approach. And there's certainly times when I do that. Get on the approach and you go, oh. That wasn't what was happening. Exactly. I'm like, no, this is not right at all. And, you know, and it's, I think it's pretty rare that that goes into the red zone where it, where, 
I haven't figured it out. I've done such a poor job figuring it out that it's actually a quartering tailwind. Usually it's a case where, okay, this is not the crosswind I thought it was, or not, maybe it's not as much, but maybe it's a little more, and maybe it's a little bit different direction than I thought. 10 to 20 degrees is, yep. is very possible. I mean, that's... Yep, and it, and, it, and it makes a huge difference too. But uh, it's all... What's nice is it's it's a learnable skill. I like to tell people sometimes, you know, get a pan of water and put a fan on it. And it sounds silly, but you can actually see that surface pattern. You can you can get used to looking at it and maybe I mean, have an oscillating fan. Yeah, we talked about that. I was like, well, how many ways can we influence this? Because in the real world, you might have wind coming from opposing directions, depending on how it's being influenced by the terrain. So put the fan on oscillation and maybe add that second fan or a hairdryer. Uh, you know, put a hairdryer in there. Just don't put it in the water. Steve, I don't know you really use a hairdryer, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> Sorry, you don't have one of those readily available. No, I, I don't. Yeah. But uh, there's lots of ways you can do it. You can even walk down the dock. And, uh, you know, I'll do that sometimes here at Kenmore. Just walk down the dock and, you know, look at what's, what's the wavelet pattern. What's it creating, you know, in between the docks. And it's, you know, I guess it's like any skill. You kind of use it or lose it a little bit. So the more that you can use it, the better. Yeah, we have terrain on three sides of us here at the seaplane base. There's terrain. You're in a U uh, surrounded by three three sides. Uh, yeah, which which actually brings up a really good point. One of the things we've learned where wind shear is uh, concerned uh, is that on a day when you have wind shear, which, like we said, is pretty much any day where you have a sustained wind, maybe 15 knots or greater, and you have you have areas of terrain, it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but some of the worst places to be uh, on those days are the places with the calmest water, because there's a reason that water is calm. The, the terrain is blocking the wind, but it's blocking the wind from getting to the surface. It's not blocking it entirely. So it's swirling over the top of the terrain. It just hasn't made it down to the water yet. So when you are going for that smooth water, sometimes you're making, you're kind of unwittingly making a trade for, you're trading for good water conditions, but you're unwittingly getting really poor air conditions. And so that's something we've trained for here at Kenmore actually for several years. And I, I do think that it's helped us. And, and in those kind of circumstances, sometimes you're better off um, with a little rougher water conditions, but more consistent wind conditions. Because at least... At least you know what you're getting in the air. Yeah, with terrain as a consideration, I think that's a very valid point. Um, you you want to actually aim for a, a acceptable amount of uh, chop on the water. You, you do, yeah, you do. And it's I've learned to be really suspicious of the calm areas. I mean, and not on a day when it's blowing five or even ten. It's that's not really the same thing. I mean, you can have nice protected areas, but you don't have the same wind shear setup. But but when you have uh, you know a higher kind of overall wind speed, fifteen knots, twenty knots, let's say, I've really learned uh, on those days to be really leery of the the calm areas of water because it it's often just a place you don't want to be. So I'm I'm struggling. You and I talked about this. I look forward to doing a video and a YouTube video or something where we can show this and demonstrate it a little bit uh, more visually than a conversation like this. But I want to do everything we can to describe you know, this C that we're looking for in the wavelets and understanding what's going on there. So let's really one more time hit that and talk about, you know, how a pilot can can use what we're talking about and right. identify it. 
Right. If you go back to that pan of water with the fan on it, uh, if you turn on that fan and t- just turn it on low, it starts to starts to move the wavelets on top of the water and bend them just slightly into the letter C. If you turn up the, the setting on that fan just a little bit, the C becomes more, I don't know how to describe it, but less flat and, and more closed, cupped. I think. More cupped. That's a better way of putting it. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's really it. That's the pattern you're looking for. And, of course, it's not one C. It's thousands it's of thousands them. It's thousands of them. It's yeah. thousands of them, and they are they're only on the surface. They're, they have nothing to do with what could be going on in the water underneath the surface, like around here, lots of boat wakes and, you know, possibly lots of swells from other sources that don't have anything to do with the wind. Uh, But it's that surface pattern pattern you're looking at. And then your, your choices with respect to that on your approaches, and we haven't talked that much about takeoffs, but also on takeoff, uh, it's your angle relative to that letter C. Yeah, so you want to be in line with the the center of the sea as much as possible consistently. Yep, that's right. You so, know, yeah, yeah. So you know, that's another thing. So in you guys here in the San Juan Islands, you know, people should recognize that where you dock and you try to operate these seaplanes, you're operating in harbors and bays and coves, which are protected areas for boats. They're designed to be exactly that. But that's because of water conditions, not because of necessarily wind conditions. Right. Yeah. One thing we've learned on the when it comes to takeoffs, you got to be really careful of how you use that protection. One of the most common takeoff accidents that I found in that Transport Canada study was um, when uh, when you plan a takeoff where your liftoff is right when you're emerging from the protection of a, of some landform, some some point, I guess, and you get a settling. That's right. And you, you get wind shear is what yeah, you get. Yeah. You get a because change the- you get a change in speed or direction of the rin- of that wind right at the inopportune time, right when you're lifting off. And so yeah, that that was very well represented in that study and that's another uh, another scenario that we train for pretty heavily here. So what we're looking for is water conditions and the wind direction at our touchdown zone. So the, the theme being basically the transition between air and water being where we're, the wind direction is most important. And then also in the transition from water to air, it's not where you start the takeoff run. It's where you're, in, where you're intending to lift off and where that liftoff point is and when you're in that critical phase of the first 100 feet of climb out. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, you figure if you're above 100 feet and climbing, you're doing pretty well. If you're still on the water, generally you're doing pretty well. But it's that, just like you said, it's that transition point. If that can occur in an area of stable wind, that's what you want. If that's occurring in an area of potential... Transitions and burbling. Yep, and potential wind shear, that is what you don't want. Yeah. So what have we failed to talk about? I mean, we could go on and on about this, and I look forward to doing more workshops on this, but also producing a video, an instructional video on this, because I think that, again, there's a lot to be said for this topic. And our goal is to keep people out of trouble and to give them an, uh, an enjoyable experience. And I think that um, flying in terrain and, and the effects of wind shear is a big deal for us as seaplane pilots. It, it is, and it's it seems like such a simple topic. And, and it really is uh, in, in many ways, but it's, 
it's probably one of the most important topics as well. Uh, just your ability to learn this skill and practice this skill that is reading the water. And it's, it's something, something you don't take for granted. And, and frankly, it's, I, I know that it's possible that there are people out there who have been doing this a long time, but could maybe refine that skill quite a bit. And so that's, that's something I would encourage people to try to do. So if you're looking for a reason to go get some additional instruction, actually coming to Kidmore is a great place to do it, uh, to get some more advanced techniques and maybe learn uh, a better skill level of reading the wind than you may have had previously but or, and or to brush up on it. Sure. And, and, you know, certainly not only here, but there's many places throughout the country that, you know, they get good seaplane instruction. And, and that, is, that is a great conversation to have with your instructor or, or with whomever you're flying with. Just how, what are we doing here with respect to the wind? How are we going to read the wind? How are we going to know that when we start this approach, we know what we're doing? We know if we've got a little bit of crosswind or a lot and we know exactly what the outcome is going to be because we know what we're doing. There you go. So I would like to encourage you as a seaplane pilot to think about wind more and the effects of wind shear on our flying, um, how to set your approaches up better and to have your strategies in place for dealing with the wind, understanding what's going on at your touchdown zone and at your liftoff uh, zone. Uh, is there anything that before we sign off uh, you want to add? Thanks. But we have missed at all at all well, i don't i don't think so steve i just i appreciate you and the, the great work you do for the spa and uh it's been a pleasure talking with you okay well john thank you for your service uh to the seaplane community as an spa board member it's really important uh having the commercial operators uh represented on our board and again the wisdom that you get from flying um, the aircraft that you do and doing it day after day in, in, a, in a whole different world geographically with different sets of challenges um, than some of you know the, the other geographic regions that are represented on the board. Um, I want to thank Kenmore Air for their supports for decades uh, for the Seaplane Association and the community for all they've done. Well, thank you, Steve. Really appreciate it. And uh, for coming on Water Flying today and talking to our listeners. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode. We hope that it's been informative and we look forward to exploring topics like this and others more in the future. Until next time, fly safe and fly often. We are so glad you joined us today. If you like today's show, I highly encourage you to join the Seaplane Pilots Association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world. Members receive Water Flying, the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community. And it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.